Well, hello to all of you. It is a great joy to welcome you back to the campus, and uh, we're going to have some fun thinking about some issues related to leadership. Uh, just a couple of words up front. Uh, speaking of leadership, uh, you know, as an institution, uh, we're pretty unprecedented, certainly as a theological seminary and as a, as a Christian college, uh, in some of the people that we have coming. And over the course of the next year, uh, there may be some pretty spectacular guests uh, on this campus, and uh, we're just working out some final logistics for some of them. I just, you know, give you an alert. You're going to want to watch and see some of the folks uh, who are going to show up here. But I want to let you know about something that's coming up just next month. And uh, Senator Rand Paul is uh, going to join me for an event here on the campus, and that's going to be on Monday, October the 23rd. And in Alumni Chapel, uh, I'm going to have a conversation with Senator Paul about some of the big issues of our day. And, uh, you know, it's not a political event, although he's a politician. Uh, this is one of those areas in which Christians need to have conversations about things with uh, those who are entrusted with such uh, responsibility. We are at a crucial turning time. I think we recognize that in the society. And, and frankly, right here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And uh, so... Uh, this is just an issue that we're going to be, um, an event in which we're going to discuss a, a range of issues. And uh, I appreciate Senator Paul's willingness to do this. You know, the United States senators generally do not put themselves in situations where in front of a lot of people they get asked questions they don't know in advance. So I appreciate Senator Paul being willing to do that. And uh, we're going to have fun. And again, that's going to be Monday, October the 23rd at 11 o'clock a.m. in Alumni Chapel. So I'll mention that, and there'll be some other news uh, coming your way as well. I'm a little surrounded by material here, uh, and there's a story behind that, which has to do with uh, what we'll be talking about today. So it's a little different physical challenge up here. I have a main goal of not knocking these books off of the podium <laughs> as I speak to you. I appreciate the comments concerning uh, the 30 years that Mary and I have been here as president. I arrived as a, a student now almost uh, 45 years ago. Uh, had teenagers in this room, by the way. It's a different room, a different level of noise when this room was filled with uh, about 400 teenagers. That we put the, you know, the seats all go this way and with the D3 camps we do here during the summer and other events, it's just so much fun to have them in the room. And there, if you don't if you don't love teenagers, you're, you're, you're just dead. And especially Christian teenagers who've shown up because they're excited to be here. They're, frankly, they're excited about everything. They're, you know, they're excited about snacks. They're, you know, they're, uh, they're just excited. And uh, so anyway, I was in here and I was just talking to them this, in one of the events this past summer and was just kind of saying to them, you know, the passage of time. And then I just... I look at these 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, and I realize, what does the passage of time mean to a 16-year-old? You know, nothing. Okay, so I found the perfect object lesson. I'll just tell you right now. I point to that painting. And I just say, I am that man. This is what 30 years later looks like. And it's just interesting to see the teenage faces go. <laughs> there it is. There it is. This is, this, this is Genesis 3, lived out. Yeah, this is what it looks like. Uh, what a privilege to be standing in this room 30 years later and uh, to speak to a group such as uh, those of you who are gathered here today. It makes, uh, makes both of us very, very happy. 
And uh, we also understand that times are very strategic. So uh, there are important things we need to talk about. And there are few issues more important for us to talk about than leadership. And today, just in our sequence of leadership briefings, I want to speak about the fact that a plan of battle is not enough, and uh, thus to speak about grand strategy and the leadership of the future. I have a lot of interests. I, I tell people, you come to my library or you hear me speak, you, know, you pretty much know there are just a lot of interests. And you know, at least a part of what uh, I get to do is to just lean into those interests and uh, try to hope to share some things with others who will find them similarly interesting. I'm fascinated with military history. I have been since I was a very young boy. And uh, military history is so important because it's not only interesting, it's informative, it's instructive. And it is because we recognize war is one of the extreme conditions that humans can experience, and it, it tends to bring things out and clarify. War reveals reality. Uh, our goal is not to romanticize it. And uh, it was Robert E. Lee who said, it's a good thing war is so terrible, otherwise we would love it too much. In other words, there, there are things that come in the midst of war uh, in terms of camaraderie and the display of courage and so many other things. And even the development, I mean, so many of the technologies we have, I mean, even medical treatments have come out of the context of war. But it is so terrible that we should rightly fear it. On the other hand, in a fallen world, it will sometimes be necessary. I was asked by a student the other day about uh, Christian just war theory, and I was asked if it can be summarized in one sentence, and I basically said, and this is not, this is not capable of encompassing everything that's in Christian just war theory, but it's, it's the basic bottom line, which is you must not start it by aggression, but when it comes it must be taken as the least worst option available. And I think it's a pretty fair summary of the way Christianity has considered war. Uh, we understand that if war comes and it is unavoidable, it must be fought by certain rules. But if it is unavoidable, it must be the least worst option possible. Unfortunately, throughout much of human history, we have learned many of the most lasting and important, if costly, lessons in the crucible of war. Uh, war is the great clarifier. Let me just point out how this is being lived out in our time. Over the course of the last year, and, or just a little bit more than a year, say a year and a half, uh, our understanding, just for one thing, of the military capability of the Russian armed forces has been completely redefined by a year and more of war. Uh, U.S. official Pentagon estimates indicated that because of the strength and professionalism of the Russian army, that once the invasion of Ukraine had begun, the Russians would have control of Kyiv within 72 to 100 hours. You may have noticed that did not happen. And, and not only did it not happen, but it didn't happen in such a way that we had just over the last, say, 72 hours, actually, what we had was a cartoon of the confusion of world history with the uh, supreme leader of North Korea 
going by armored train to Vladivostok to meet with Vladimir Putin because Vladimir Putin now needs bullets from North Korea. There's more to it than that, but there's not less to it than that. So war is the great clarifier. You really find out what's going on. You, fi you find out who actually is stronger than whom. You find out who's got the goods and which army is actually effective in the crucible of war. But we never forget the tragedy of it. The, the most sobering statement about war to me is that made by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus who said, in peace, sons bury their fathers. In war, fathers bury their sons. Just a reminder of what is at stake. A plan of battle is not enough. Grand strategy in the leadership of the future. So, this gets into terrain I hope will be interesting to us all as we think about our own responsibility in leadership. This is a briefing about leadership, so what does all of this have to do about leadership? Well, it's because one of the main engines of the development and revelation of, of leadership, just in terms of how it actually works in human experience, has been war. It's one of the reasons why generalship has been one of the most interesting context for the development of leadership. There's a reason why former military officers are so attractive to corporate America. It is because the military knows how to forge and form leaders. And those who've experienced leadership in that context, well, they can know that those leadership skills are applied elsewhere. Just look at the period in the United States after the Second World War when that unprecedented officer class went into corporate America. It made a difference that continues until this day. But this requires a little vocabulary too, so just follow with me with a little vocabulary. I'm going to use three terms, and just as an historian myself, these are three terms by my own idiosyncratic definition, and I will contend that this definition is right, okay? There it is. It's a distinction between the three terms, tactics, strategy, and grand strategy. So my title is about grand strategy and the leadership of the future. I would define those three terms this way. Tactics have to do with how to win a battle. Strategy has to do with why to fight a battle. And grand strategy is what this war or this battle means to our ultimate interest. For a nation, that's national interest. So tactics are about how to win this battle. And let's face it, in the crucible of the battle, those tactics become unspeakably important. And by the way, you find out if they work or if they don't work in the crucible of battle. Again, it reveals. You find out who had the better battle plan, whose troops were better trained, whose officers had a better theory of war, whose command was more effective and who's less effective. You find that out pretty quickly. The problem is that battles come and go. They're in the, within the context of wars that also come and go, but leave a much longer shadow than individual battles. Tactics explain how to win a battle. Strategy is why to fight a battle. Why, why here? Why this valley? Why this time? Why, why this particular battle matters in a larger plan in order to achieve the aims of war? The grand strategy is a different kind of term. It's really a European term. 
And it explains what this war means to our ultimate interest, or our national interest. And so as you look at realpolitik and you look at the history of Europe in particular, well, you're looking at a lot of wars, you're looking at a lot of battles, you're also looking at grand strategy being played out. Why are we talking about this today? Well, it is because of the development in the publishing world that led me backwards rather than forwards. The development most recently in the, public, in the publishing world is uh, the release this year of this book. It's edited by Hal Brands, who's the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University. It's a massive book. It's heavy. If you're looking for a book to make you look serious, this is that book. It's entitled The New. Notice that new is in a different typeface. The New Makers of Modern Strategy, the subtitle From the Ancient World to the Digital Age, edited by Hal Brands. It's a massive, massive project. Just came out this year. And uh, it brings rather up-to-date. And I say rather up-to-date because the moment that uh, a book is finished, it's out of date, especially on this kind of issue. But this book was, is recent enough that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the development of new forms of digital warfare and cyber warfare are directly addressed in this book. So it was perfectly timed in the sense that it could be brought up to date, even given the invasion of Ukraine and what has been learned even in the first months of that conflict in this massive multi-author work. But what makes this very interesting is that this is the third edition of the same book. All right, so where did it begin? It began with a man by the name of Edward Mead Earl. He was a professor at Princeton University and a part of the Institute for Advanced Studies. Now, Americans would come to know the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton later largely through the fact that uh, Albert Einstein and others would be a part of that faculty. The idea of the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton was that you would take the greatest minds of the age and they wouldn't be given any particular teaching responsibility. Rather, they would be put in a place where by cross-fertilization, uh, great intellectual gains could be made. And, and just to be honest, America's success in bringing World War II to an end had a great deal to do with the brain trust in the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, including the uh, development of nuclear weapons, you know, directly traceable. It's not an accident that Albert Einstein and so many others uh, ended up there at the conclusion of the war, and even uh, some of them long before the conclusion of the war. So Edward Mead Earle brought together a team to produce this first volume. I will tell you, Mary will understand, I spend a lot on books. It is not cheap to find a copy of this book. An individual copy is several hundred dollars if you kind of are lucky enough to find one at that price. It's Makers of Modern Strategy, Military Thought from Machiavelli to Hitler, edited by Edward Mead Earle. Let me tell you why this book is so important. The date of this book is 1943. This is a book of the greatest military minds in the United States of America in the middle of World War II, trying to figure out what strategy looks like. There's a huge story behind that. More on that in just a moment. There's a middle book, and this is, I think, the least interesting of them all. And this is 1986, Makers of Modern Strategy from Machiavelli to the Nuclear Age, edited by Peter Parrott, also the Institute for Advanced Studies 
at Princeton, also published by Princeton University Press, also large. You notice books get larger. This is the way the academic world works. Volume one, volume two, volume three, volume four, we'll have to have wheels. <laughs> There's a reason why this book is of limited utility, and it is because 1986 is exactly the end of an era that nobody knows is ending. The Soviet Union and its block, the, the satellites of the Soviet Union, the Cold War itself will in one sense end three to five years after the publication of this book, which is subtitled From Machiavelli to the Nuclear Age. Now, this is fascinating as a period piece. It really is. There's a huge amount of strategic information and uh, intellectual engagement in this book. It, it, so my copy is, is quite marked up. Uh, I learned a lot. But what I decided was that having discovered this book earlier this year, I would do whatever it took to find the two previous editions and read them in order. It's just an interesting intellectual enterprise about leadership. So I eventually found a copy of the first book and read it, and got a copy of the second book and read it, and the third book and read it. I'm not here to give you a book report. I am here to tell you there's something absolutely astounding in this. In 1943, the United States was already a major nation on the world scene. The United States already had more than 100 years of history and trending towards a second 100 years of history. There are some military veterans in this room. I think most Americans do not understand that the United States military had absolutely no grand strategy until it was developed of necessity in the middle of World War II. It's an astounding thing. The United States didn't have a national strategy. And by the way, it was not an accident. The United States did not have a national strategy as a matter of principle. The United States was going to be a nation without a national strategy. The United States was going to be self-referential and it was going to stand on its own, and it was not going to be like continental Europe, which was constantly at war. What Americans saw in the early American period about grand strategy was Europe constantly at war, nation against nation, empire against empire, just one war after another. Everybody's interest getting entangled with everybody else's interests. So the United States said, our interest is right here, and it stops right here. We don't have any interest in the affairs of the rest of the world. The quintessential statement of this was a speech given on the 4th of July, 1821, by the United States Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams. Of course, also a president of the United States. His father, also a president of the United States. John Quincy Adams, as a 12-year-old boy, with his mother, stood on the ridge and saw the Battle of Bunker Hill. His father wasn't there because his father was in the battle. Now, John Quincy Adams on January, uh, July the 4th, 1821, gives this address. I won't read the whole thing to you, although I could because it's so short. But speaking as the United States Secretary of State on the 4th of July, 1821, John Quincy Adams gave these very famous words. She, in this case, means the United States of America. She has, in the lapse of nearly half a century, without a single exception, 
respected the independence of other nations while asserting and maintaining her own. She, the United States of America, has in the lapse of nearly half a century, without a single exception, abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when conflict has been for principles to which she clings, as to the last vital drop that visits the heart. She has seen that probably for centuries to come, all the contests that that affect the European world will be contests of inveterate power and emerging right. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will be her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers. So you notice what a limited military assurance that is. No matter how noble your cause and precious to our own principles, we'll pray for you. It's what the Secretary of State of the United States said. Then the most famous statement in this address, she, speaking of the United States of America, does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. So that was an acknowledgement on the part of John Quincy Adams that the world's filled with monsters. But let the monsters fight the monsters. As for the United States of America, he went on to say, we will be the friend of liberty everywhere for all. But their affairs will not be our affairs. So, of course, you ask the question, what happened? And you already know the answer. What happened was the 20th century. So even in the beginning of the 20th century, the United States was still officially the nation that didn't care in terms of military involvement about anything going on in the rest of the world. Now, clearly, there were already exceptions. The Spanish-American War ended up drawing the United States into issues. And yet the United States, even as, you know, you, people, historians will look back and say, look, that's when the United States became an imperial power. Well, not like the European imperial powers. The United States didn't even want to be that kind of imperial power. The United States basically wanted to get out of everything it got into in the international arena. Where it was drawn into something inevitable, it sought to extricate itself as quickly as possible. Then came World War I, and just remind yourselves that in the 20th century, two of the greatest leadership challenges, and, and, and there are a lot of politics in this, there are, there, there's a, there are a lot of historical arguments to be made, but by any estimation, two of the greatest challenges faced by American presidents when it came to Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt was getting America into a war that was inevitable, but politically untenable until it became unavoidable. And, of course, you look at this, and the failure of, or the absence of grand strategy on the part of the United States is made clear by the fact that the United States becomes absolutely crucial to the end of World War I. And, and looked at honestly, we didn't show up until the very, very end. And I think most Americans have a, a historical vision of World War I in which the Yanks came over and won the war. Well, the Yanks came over at the very end, but, as it turned out, made the decisive difference uh, at the very end. The European powers were absolutely spent and overcame the Americans, and the Yanks did come. And by the way, as in World War I, so in World War II, we were humiliated by early military efforts against European powers. It's because we didn't really know how to do this. And we didn't know how to do this because we had claimed we didn't want to do this. Then we proved we weren't really any good at this. But the American armed forces are the fastest learning organization on earth. And so even as that was true, it also became true that the Americans in both world wars learned very quickly how to win of necessity. 
But World War I came to an end, and, and the Americans were really in the driver's seat, so much so that Woodrow Wilson's the most important person, uh, as you know, you know the, at the Versailles Conference. And the United States and its determination of things becomes absolutely crucial. And then you'll recall that even though Wilson wanted to be the great determinator of things, the United States did not. Woodrow Wilson, in terms of the League of Nations and all he sought to do at the end of World War I, he was defeated not by European powers, but by the United States Senate. The United States Senate said, we do not want to have an ongoing leadership role in the world. We, we went over to save Europe from Europe. We did that because it was inevitable. And, and by the way, if you don't know about things such as the Zimmerman telegram, you know, just figuring how the United States was drawn into World War I had to do with the fact that they were, the Germans were sinking our ships. That had one thing to do with it in a day when that was everything. But the other thing was that the German foreign minister had sent a telegram to Mexico saying that if Mexico would enter the war as the ally of imperial Germany, uh, Germany would arrange for much of the territory of the United States of America to be given back to Mexico. You may not be surprised that the White House was not pleased with the discovery of that telegram. And uh, so the Zimmerman telegram, Barbara Tuckman, by the way, if you're looking for an interesting read, just read the Zimmerman telegram by Barbara Tuckman, a uh, great narrative historian. It's a fascinating work. But the point is that the United States ended World War I victorious and on the rise and didn't want the mantle of world leadership, didn't have a world strategy, and went home. And, of course, then we're drawn back into it again and drawn back into it by the fact that I think uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was President Carter's a national security advisor, a fascinating figure in terms of understanding the world. Uh, he, along with other historians, including even the Marxist historian, Eric Hobsbawm, basically the right and the left are agreed in this, and that is that there were not two world wars in the 20th century. There was one world war, and it was separated by an interregnum. But there's not an accident that's basically the same map showing up again in 19. 38, 39, even 36, 37, but now you have to add Imperial Japan to the map. Mary and I are headed uh, with many friends to England and uh, just next week, and uh, you know, I'm always fascinated to be able to speak to those who are with us and say, you know, this is what this meant for the development of medieval Christianity, and this is what this meant for the, uh, the Eighth Air Force. And sometimes you're standing in the same place. Uh, there are places you can go in England where you're standing looking at a cathedral and you're standing on tarmac with weeds growing through it because this was, a, this was an American bomber base. And the reason they put it near the cathedrals is because if everything else failed, the pilot might be able to find the cathedral breaking through the clouds. Anyway, uh, I also tell them that uh, you know, there, were, there, were, there were several complaints made by British folks about all the Americans who came, the American GI soldiers and sailors, especially in World War II. And, and the complaint was that the Americans were overpaid, oversexed, overweight, and over here. <laughs> Do you know that the average American GI was inches taller than the average British soldier? It just shows you the, the period between the wars. In the United States, even though there was a Great Depression and all the rest, American corn-fed farm boys towered over even the Nazi Huns 
It was an interesting period. But, you know, the United States, in the middle of World War II, all of a sudden comes to the conclusion, maybe we got to have a world strategy. I mean, we're over here a second time. And furthermore, it's the same people. And, and, and even as the United States wanted to live in some kind of blissful isolation, it was impossible. And so, again, what makes this book so interesting is that it comes in 1943 in the middle of the war. And, you know, you look at these chapters, and they're fascinating because what you have here is the makers of modern strategy. And, and you'll recall the subtitle. This is 1943, published by Princeton University Press. And the subtitle is Military Thought from Machiavelli to Hitler. Okay, so Hitler is winning at this point, 1943. Both in, uh, the, in the sense of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, I mean, we can see the handwriting on the wall now. 1943, and by the way, the book's published in 1943. That means most of these papers were prepared in 1941. Just think about that year. But you look at this, and this is the United States military class coming to terms with the fact, you know, Hitler's got a strategy. <laughs> Maybe we have to have one. Um, Imperial Japan has a strategy. Uh, maybe we ought to know what that is. Maybe someone ought to write it down. Maybe that will help make sense of this war. Okay, here's the strange thing. Uh, America retreated from the world stage after World War I, and people like to tell the story of America not retreating from the stage at the end of World War II, but it's not entirely true. Edward Mead Earl did his very best to be the catalyst for a second volume after World War II. Wouldn't you think that would be important? I mean, now you have the, the biggest military conflagration in world history. The map's been rewritten. The globe's been recolored. Wouldn't you think the United States would think, maybe we need a new strategy? He couldn't get people to put the work in to write the book. He couldn't get the Pentagon interested enough. And, of course, the American military paid a price for that. But they pretty much came to an awareness by the end of the 1940s and going into the 1950s that there was no way for the United States to escape a leadership role in the world scene. The Korean conflict, Vietnam, all the things that would happen around the world would draw the United States in. The word strategy up until World War II for Americans was considered a European word. It was... It was it was a European term. We don't need a strategy. By the end of World War II, there was at least the awareness that, no, we do need a strategy. And by the time, for example, that the Cold War would reach its intensity such that there's a reorganization of the American military, one of the key units of the American military becomes the Strategic Air Command, SAC. And people look at that and go, well, of course, that makes perfect sense. The use of the word strategic in a major American military unit would not have been possible before World War II. It became inevitable thereafter. So three, three versions of one book, a bit of my summer project. It made me want to talk to you about it because I think this is very, very relevant to our responsibility as leaders. So by what, by what scheme would I make this argument? What is the relevance of grand military strategy or grand national strategy in our tasks of leadership. I speak as a Christian leader to other Christian leaders about grand strategy in the leadership of the future. This is our moment. This is our responsibility. 
And I think we recognize as Christian leaders, this is not a time of tranquility. Uh, nor do we anticipate that we are entering a time of tranquility. Like the United States entering the 20th century, it's not that we're seeking to go abroad to destroy monsters, looking for monsters to destroy. It is that the monsters are here. The challenges are formidable. This is not a time of peace or tranquility like the United States in the 20th century. We now find ourselves bearing a responsibility of leadership. We didn't seek, we didn't appoint ourselves to this, but we also can't avoid it. We live in a world of contested truth, contested morality, contested doctrine, contested ontology. Christians haven't talked a lot about ontology. Uh, we, we have to. That's what's at stake when we say a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl and that neither wishful thinking nor noxious ideology can make it otherwise. I mean, we are in a war whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and it's a war over the most basic of all issues, and it's a war about the destiny, yes, of this nation, yes, about the, the world of nations, yes, but it, it's, a, it's a war about the future of our families and about our grandchildren, and about our communities, and about our churches, and about our, our Christian work. The United States assiduously, during the first half of the 20th century, sought not to choose sides until the sides were chosen for it. This is fascinating. So do you know that the United States War Department, as it was known, had war plans against Britain. Not only before World War I, but just before World War II. Now, why was it that we were fearing that there was going to be a British invasion force coming back to Boston? No, and as a matter of fact, it, it, it's clear the United States saw that the, the British were most likely to be allies. But the point is, it was a matter of official neutrality on the part of the American government that even as war plans were drawn up against openly belligerent nations, you know, we had war plans against those who were likely to be our allies. But this is a time in which we better know who is on our side and we'd better pick a side. Our leadership and our challenge must be rethought as preparing those that we lead for permanent battle over permanent things. We just need to tell the Christians in our care and those we lead there's never going to be a time of peace. This is, this is not a time of temporary disequilibrium. There, there is simply no reason, there's no rational basis for believing that this challenge is going to get any easier going forward. We look backwards and we see the American leadership in World War I, the American leadership just before World War II, and it's not so much that we look back and say, yeah, they saw what they saw, it's that we look back and say they didn't see what they should have seen. This is true for many Christians in our current era and for many Christian leaders. So my point is not to uh, encourage you according to military strategy. It is to say you better have a strategy. And even as we look back at the United States and think it was hopelessly naive of the United States to be in principle against having a strategy, even up until, say, the mid-1940s, we recognize that it would be a failure of leadership in our time not to have a strategy. We better know what that strategy is. I want to go back to the definition. Tactics about how to win a battle, 
Strategies about why to fight a battle, grand strategy is how all this fits into the grand purpose for which we exist. I think that's why we need grand strategy. That's why I talk on the briefing about the Christian worldview, what this demands of us. The Christian worldview is, in one sense, a grand strategy. Uh, the Great Commission is a grand strategy. Uh, scripture gives us a comprehensive grand strategy. And you know, if we're just picking little battles on the fringes, that's ultimately not going to matter. We need to raise children who are inculcated in the grand strategy of what Christian faithfulness looks like in an increasingly post-Christian age. We need pastors. We need pastors who have a grand strategy about what the ministry means, what the preaching of the word is all about. And it's not just about this sermon any more than a military can, can survive by being concerned with just this battle. It's not even just this issue. It's the entire composite and comprehensiveness of Christian truth. Leadership, I have argued, is the transmission of conviction from one heart to another, leading to effective combined action. That does require tactics. After all, you do need to know how to win a battle. Otherwise, there's no point, there's no point in thinking about strategy if you fail in tactics. That's why, you know, as we prepare leaders, we actually need to teach them how to do nuts and bolts things. Uh, I mean, it's really important that they know how to win a battle because otherwise strategy isn't going to matter. But winning the battle is not enough because other battles will come. That requires strategy. And the grand strategy means the right worldview applied consistently without compromise. It's conviction or nothing. It's grand strategy or colossal failure. And I think we know where we have to aim Edward Earl Mead began this book, by the way, this first edition with this line, when war comes, it dominates our lives. And you know, the, the point Earl was making is, you know, when war comes, you pay attention to it. When war comes, everything becomes clarified. It dominates everything. We're now in a condition of war. I don't think most evangelical Christians understand that we are now in a condition of war. You know, one of the tasks of leadership is to uh, let Christians know what time it is. And uh, like the sounding of the horn in the beginning of the battle, at least a part of what we have to do is tell Christians we're in a war. And by the way, it's not a short one. It's going to be a long one. And it doesn't require merely tactics. It does require tactics. You have to know, you know how to deal with X and Y and Z. It requires strategy. And not just strategy, but grand strategy that tells us why we are here on planet Earth and why it matters. Why we contend for permanent things, pointing to eternal things. So, to the battle we have been called, to the strategy we must go. So I'm very thankful to go together with fellow leaders like those gathered in this room. Thankful to be in a place where our task is to prepare preachers, missionaries, ministers, leaders who are going to go out not only with uh, good tactics, but with grand strategy. That's our job. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you have called us to this battle and that the battle is the Lord's. Father, we pray to be found faithful, and that will require everything we can bring, and it won't be enough. It's going to require you showing your greatness and your glory in this generation. We pray you'll do just that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.